Let me pray, and then let's just go ahead and jump right in. Our gracious Heavenly Father, as we come to look at um, this text and this prayer of the Apostle Paul, I do pray specifically for what he's praying for. Enlighten the eyes of our heart that we might know you better, that we might understand all that you have done for us in Christ, and that we would then be changed and transformed by that knowledge to live new lives. And I pray that you would be pleased to do this for your good, or for our good and for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right, the prayer that we're going to look at this morning, actually it follows the longest sentence in, in the whole New Testament. See, Paul loves run-on sentences, and he busts out into praise over something, and he can't stop. So verses 3 through 14, Paul busts out into praise because of God's eternal plan of salvation and because of his sons accomplishing our salvation for us and the Holy Spirit then applying God's salvation in and through us. And (laughs) this prayer, verses 15 through 23, is also one long sentence. So we have to put punctuation in there so we can take breaths because Paul does not. So Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 through 23. For this reason, the reason because of everything he just said in verses 3 through 14, for this reason, because I have heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love towards all the saints, I do not cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of him, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened. And this is, get a little Greek geek here. My brother likes to say, God's in the grammar, okay? Having, this is in the perfect tense, which means it's a definite past action that has already happened that has present and ongoing continual effects and results. So having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he has worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. All right. uh, (laughs) When I was in high school and college, I did not realize the positive benefits that wrestling would have on being a parent. (laughs) Uh, I would get my kids when they were younger, I would wrap them up and control them in such a way that I had their legs where they couldn't move, I had their arms where they couldn't move, and I could keep their head in one place. And whenever I would get my boys in this position, I would always say, okay, David or Jonathan, what's true? And they'd say, "Uh, we're in a bad spot, Dad. And I was like, yeah, you're in a bad spot. So this is the fun benefit of wrestling. But my wrestling skills... uh, are key when your child has pink eye. And for all of you who have children and know when you administer eye drops, you know what I'm talking about, right? This is a necessary aspect because they start off trusting you, don't they? Be like, okay, 
<laughs> the doctor told us that we have to put these eye drops in your eye and your eye will get better. So our children, they start off trusting us, but once that first drop hits, all bets are off, right? They go berserk <laughs> because they're introduced to a new reality at that moment. So we can tell them the facts, hey, this is going to help your eye to get better. But once that drop hits, they're introduced to a new reality called pain, called discomfort. Ouch, I don't like that. I don't want that. I refuse to do that again. And so this is where wrestling is a great benefit because they go berserk and they run off and then I grab them, I control them, and then I hold them down on the ground. But my wrestling skills can only do so much. Right? I can control them, but I can't pry their eye open and administer the drops to them. So this is where marriage becomes a very positive benefit, right? Because now you can tag team your kids. And so my wife is the one, when I would hold them down, they had to pry their eye open and then try to administer the drops all while your child is screaming hysterically. Now, I'm telling you this not because of wrestling, but because our children's grasp of reality was insufficient to open their eyes to see why they needed the eye drops. See, in order for them to see more clearly, they needed to be enlightened to expand their understanding. And we as Christians are no different. So our view of reality is limited. We need to be enlightened about God so that our relationship with God can grow deeper. In other words, we all need to grow in our understanding of God so that we can see the reality of who He is more clearly and then experience that reality of who He is more deeply. And this is exactly what Paul is praying for God to do for those who are reading this letter. See, most of us think we have a pretty good grasp of reality, but what is your grasp of reality based on? Take, for example, my opening illustration. When my children got pink eye, we told them the facts. <laughs> we have to administer these drops to you three times a day for four days, and your eye will get better. And they heard these facts, and they might have even believed these facts. But once that first drop hit, they're introduced to a new reality called pain, called discomfort. And when they experienced that, what they experienced and felt overrode the facts and changed their view of reality. See, what they experienced and felt changed the way they view things. So my question for us is this, is that what have you experienced that has changed your view of God? For some of you, you've grown up in the church, but you've left it for a while. And maybe you're coming back investigating. We've all been taught things about God. We've been taught that God is sovereign over all things. We've been taught that God is love and that God proves his love by sending his son to die for our sins. We've been taught that God is good. But something has happened. Something has happened in your life that has changed your view of God. You're questioning the reality of God's sovereignty. You're questioning the reality of his goodness. You're questioning the reality of his love. And maybe you're even questioning the reliability of this book, the Bible. I don't know, but something has happened to you 
that has changed your view of God and your view of the world. Now, there's others of you that you've been coming to church, but you really feel like you don't belong, right? You like what you're hearing, but you think it's too good to be true. This, yes, is true for others, but it can't be true for me because you don't know what I know. You don't know what I do. You don't know the things that I have done. I'm not like these people. (laughs) I'm not good enough, and I just hope nobody finds out the reality of who I am. And then for others, maybe you had a bad experience with church. Maybe there was bad teaching in the church, teaching that didn't really mesh with what the Bible says. So maybe now you distrust the church, or you've been burned by the church, or you've been labeled, you've been judged, you've been rejected by people in the church, and you've been made to feel like you aren't good enough for God. So what are you ready to do? I'm ready to just chuck this whole Christianity thing, because what's the point? In verses 3 through 14, Paul has just given us the facts about God and his eternal plan of salvation that he accomplishes in his Son, and then applies to his people through the Holy Spirit. So why is this not enough to shape your view of reality? Why does Paul need to pray this prayer, in other words? (laughs) After he praises God for his eternal plan of accomplishing our salvation, Paul prays that we need further illumination, further enlightenment about who God is and what he has done for us in Christ. And the question is why? Because Paul knows that what we feel and what we experience overrides the truth and the facts of what God says. See, Paul knows that our everyday experiences can affect what we think is true and affect how we view things. He knows that our faith is weak. He knows that it needs to be strengthened. He knows that we all have a distorted view of who God is that needs to change. Paul is praying this prayer because he knows that what we see and experience carries more weight and influence than what God says. So our text, it's a prayer we all need. All of us have been taught things about God. All of us know things about God, but what we know about God, it needs to go deeper and deeper into our hearts so that it impacts our lives more and more and more. In other words, we all need to grow deeper in understanding who God is and all that He has done for us in Christ. We all need the Holy Spirit to help us to see and know better the truths about God. Why? Because we can't see Him. And what we see is more real and true to us than what God says. So... What is Paul praying for exactly here? Well, believe it or not, he only makes one request, one request, and it's in verse 17, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. But he prays this so that we would know three things more deeply. 
in verses 18 through 19. First, that we would know what is the hope that he has called us to. Second, that we would know what is the wealth of his glorious inheritance in the saints. And then third, what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. And then in verses 20 through 22, Paul gives two examples of God's immeasurable power, raising Jesus from the dead and exalted, exalting and seating him at his right hand over all rule, over all authority, over all power. Now, I want to deal with something real quick before we dive into the heart of Paul's prayer. This is a prayer for enlightenment and illumination about already revealed truth. This is not for new revelation. <laughs> Paul is not praying that God would give us new revelation about himself that he has not previously made known, which means this is not an imparting of some secret mystery that only a select few have. This is Paul praying that God would open our understanding more and more to what he has already revealed so that we would grasp more fully who God is and what God has done. Now, he wants us to know and to grasp more deeply these truths that he just prayed God, praised God for in verses four, 3 through 14. Because look what he says, for this reason. Everything Paul praises God for in verses 3 through 14 is being demonstrated in the lives of the Ephesian believers. Paul hears of their faith. And Paul hears about the reports of the way that they love one another. Now, this is not a perfect face without any doubts. And this is not a perfect love without any failures. God's eternal purpose of salvation is evidencing itself in the lives of the Ephesians who believe. And so Paul is praying that they would grasp more fully who God is and what God has given to them in Christ. Why? Because he doesn't want our faith and our love for one another to remain static. He wants it to grow more and more and more. So we need the Holy Spirit to illumine the realities of who God has revealed himself to be so that these truths penetrate deeper and deeper into our hearts. And this type of knowledge, it's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake. This is knowledge of God that actually changes and transforms you. The type of knowledge that causes you to believe better. The type of knowledge that causes you to believe brighter, to believe bigger. So look at verse 18. Again, having the eyes of your heart enlightened. I told you it's in the perfect tense, but it's also the passive, which means... The Holy Spirit's the one acting upon us to do this. We don't do this in our own. So what Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit, he's already been given to you, but his work of enlightening you is present and ongoing. It's continual. So we need the Holy Spirit to constantly act upon us, to constantly give us wisdom and insight into who God has already revealed himself to be. Why? So that we can grow in our understanding of three things more deeply. First, we need to know more deeply the hope that he has called us to. And this is referring and connecting to verses 3 through 14. And the Bible has a different concept of hope than we do. Because we use hope as if it's uncertain. Right? I, I hope I get a raise. <laughs> I hope she won't be mad at me. Right? <laughs> 
in these instances, we're hoping for things that we're not sure or certain of. But the hope that Paul is referring to here, it's not wishful thinking, it's certainty. It's a confident expectation. See, we need the Holy Spirit to help us to know God better so that we would grow more certain and more confident that the love that God has for us is eternal, unchanging, never-ending, infinite. We need to know more deeply with certainty that God has adopted us into his family as his children that in Christ he has done everything necessary to save us and gives us an eternal inheritance that cannot perish and we cannot lose. See, why do we need to know this more deeply? Because we all need to grow more confident that our salvation does not depend on us, but depends on God. We need to know with more certainty that God saves us in Christ. Because when we continue to sin, a new reality is introduced into our experience called what? Doubt. We can hear the facts that God loves us with an eternal, unchanging love. We can hear the facts that God chose to set his eternal, unchanging love upon us. We can hear that God adopts us into his family. We can hear that in Jesus we have the forgiveness of sins and redemption. But as soon as we are introduced to the reality that we still sin, that we don't always act like God's children, that we continually turn away from our heavenly father, it's like when that first drop hit my child's eyes, we panic and we don't believe what God says to be true. I mean, how can I be forgiven when I don't feel forgiven? How can God love me when I don't always act in love towards him? God, how can I be a child of God when I don't live like one? See, all of us need to know more deeply that the hope that God has called us to is a salvation that we did not accomplish, but one that Jesus has accomplished for us. See, God's love and acceptance of us, it has absolutely nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with Christ. And we, you and I, must understand this. In and of ourselves, we are not holy. We are declared to be holy, but we are not holy. We are full of blame, but Christ was holy and died in our place to take our blame. See, we have been redeemed through his blood, and because Jesus was holy, God now sees us in him as holy and blameless. So we need the Holy Spirit to help us to grow in our confidence that we are forgiven and we remain in a perpetual state of forgiveness. Second thing we need to know more deeply, 
what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And this is so misunderstood because I want you to notice that it's not that we may know more deeply the inheritance that awaits us. <laughs> Paul says we are God's glorious inheritance. We are his prized possession. Because of him choosing, adopting, redeeming, and sealing us, in other words, we're his. Paul wants us to know more intimately God so we would know more deeply how much God values us. Gosh, do you realize that you are valuable to God? God treasures you. You are his wealth. With his blood, he purchased you so he could have you. And then he seals you with his Holy Spirit and he marks you as his for all of eternity. And there's nothing you can do to ever change that. Once again, we can hear this fact, but we need the Holy Spirit to open the eyes of our heart to believe it better. Why? Because, Pete, you don't know who I really am. You don't know what I know about myself. You don't know the things that I have done, and you don't know the things that I continue to do. I think things and do things that nobody in this room would accept. You don't know how sinful I really am. I may not know the specifics of how sinful you really are. I may not know you the way you know you, but God does. He sees it all. He knows it. He knows everything about you. And for some of you, this not only scares you to death, but in your mind, you've created a false narrative that you're worthless to God. A false narrative that God doesn't care about you. That God's going to discard me and treat me the way other people do. See, all of us need to be enlightened because how we feel about ourselves carries more weight than what God says. What does God say? Jesus died to make you his inheritance. God sent his son so that he could have you for all eternity. Third thing we need to know more deeply, the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe. Now, the problem here is that we measure power, right? I mean, we have RPMs, we have PSIs, we've got the Richter scale to measure an earthquake. We've got categories to measure a hurricane. We've got the Fujita whatever scale to measure the strength of a tornado. But there is no measurement for God's power. Paul tries his best, though. <laughs> he tries his best to help us to see how great God's power is by heaping word after word after word, trying to describe it. Surpassing greatness, he says. Well, what is that? It's a word that means to throw over or beyond the mark. It excels, it exceeds, it always goes over. And then Paul uses four words to show its magnitude. Dunamis. Dynamite, energia, energy. 
And I don't know what kratos and iskus, but they both mean power. Four different words for power. Now, it's one thing to describe the magnitude of God's power, right? But it's another to show it. And think about it. Paul could have chose many different examples that shows the surpassing greatness of God's power. I mean, he could have chose creation. You want to talk about power. Power that all it takes is speak, and it happens. He could have chose the ten plagues. He could have chose the parting of the Red Sea. He could have chose Jesus' miracles and driving out demons. <laughs> but the power that Paul wants us to see that God exerts towards us is the power that raised Jesus from the dead. The power that exalts him and seats him at God's right hand, subjecting all things under his feet. Now, I don't have time to draw this out. I just want to summarize and I want to end this way. Paul is saying that the power that God exerted in raising Jesus from the dead and seating him at his, at his right hand, it is the same power that is, that is at work in you. <laughs> Available to you is the power that conquered sin, the power that conquered death, the power that conquered the devil, the power that gave Christ victory over all things, which means what? Nothing can hold back this power. Nothing can stop this power. Nothing can overcome this power. Christ has been exalted to the highest position of authority and power over all things. Why is Paul praying that we would be enlightened to know the surpassing greatness of God's power? Because let's be honest, I don't see his power working in my life that way, do you? I don't see that kind of power working in the world, do you? See, we don't see Jesus reigning and ruling over all things right now, do we? What do we see? We see people still rebelling against him. We see tragedies. We see suffering. We see injustice. We don't see God sovereignly working all things for our good and for his glory. We don't see all things subjected under his feet. I mean, come on, Pete, give me a break. God's power, a reality in my life? Are you kidding me? I don't see his power at work. I don't feel his power at work. Can I challenge this for a moment? Maybe it's because you're looking for God's power in the wrong place. Paul says what? God's resurrection power is directed towards who? Those who believe. The power of God that raised Jesus from the dead is so powerful that it has already raised us to newness of life. In other words, God's resurrection power has already been displayed. Sitting in front of me 
towards those who believe. Those who believe in spite of what they see. Those who believe in spite of what they experience. Those who believe when they get a cancer diagnosis. Those who believe when they lose a loved one. Those who believe when they sacrifice for the good of their children. Spouses who live for the good of the other above themselves. That is God's resurrection power at work in the world. Dr. Paul Tillich, he's been called the father of modern liberalism. And in the 1950s, he spoke at the University of Chicago Divinity School. Now, Dr. Tillich, he did not believe in the physical bodily resurrection of Jesus. And because he didn't, he was on a mission to try to prove that Christianity was just like any other religion. There's nothing significant about it. You should just discard it like the others. And he lectured for two hours. And at the end of his talk, there was this elderly man who stood up in the back and he began to ask Dr. Tillich a question. But before he asked this question, he pulled out a brown paper sack an apple and began eating it. Dr. Tillich, jump, jump, jump. I'm not a learned man. Jump, jump, jump. I don't know about any of the scholars that you are referencing, and I don't know the original languages of Greek and Hebrew. Chomp, chomp, chomp. Puts it back in the bag. Says, Dr. Tillich, I have one question for you. Was the apple that I just ate bitter or sweet? And Dr. Tillich thought about it for a moment. He said, sir, I cannot possibly know the answer to your question because I have not tasted your apple. And the old man says, well, neither have you tasted my Jesus. May God, through the Holy Spirit, give all of us wisdom and a greater understanding of who he is and all that he has done for us in Christ so that we would taste and see that the Lord is good. Amen. Let me pray. Father, gosh, all of us are weak. Our faith in you is so fragile. And when Jesus says, if you have the faith, the size of a mustard seed, the point isn't the size of it. The point is, you have it. <laughs> and our faith in you is a gift, we are told. You are the one who opened our eyes, renewing our hearts to believe in Jesus. And so now, would you increase our faith? Would you cause it to grow would we know the hope that you have called us to with more certainty? Would we know more that we are your glorious inheritance, that you treasure us? May we know more and more the immeasurable greatness of your power that gave 
dead people in their sins, life. And then cause us to grow in it. And we ask of this in Jesus' name. Amen.